1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy.
0: welcome to skylight books you guys this is the skylight books podcast and i'm your host christine blackburn now today we're welcoming two fabulous authors greg gerkey and jim gower they're gonna read from their new books greg is reading from see what i see essays by greg gerkey and then jim is going to be reading from novel explosives And we're looking forward to hearing both. Now, before I introduce these guys, I just wanted to remind you that Skylight Book is books we are offering curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. And really, you guys, we have stayed open. We're working hard. We've got new books coming in all the time. We have endured this pandemic and Skylight Books, your favorite neighborhood bookstore, is staying strong. So please support the store and head over to buy all of your favorite books and your favorite gifts that you need to buy all year long. Head over to skylightbooks.com. All right, you guys. First, I'm going to read um, Greg Gerke's bio, and then I'll go ahead and read Jim's. Uh, Greg Gerke, he is going to be reading from his new book, See What I See, Essays by Greg Gerke. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and his collection of stories, especially The Bad Things, was published in the UK in 2019. So he's been writing a lot. But before we hear from Greg, we're gonna hear from Jim Gower. He's a mathematician, a published poet, and possibly the world's only Marxist venture capitalist. All right, you guys, enjoy the conversation with Greg Gerke and Jim Gower. Hey, Jim.
2: Hey, thanks, Christine. That was great. Uh, I'll try to explain the world's only Marxist venture capitalist maybe on another episode. So I'm gonna read um, just the first half of the first paragraph of chapter 12. So we're about um, a quarter of the way into the book. Let me first give a bit of context. Novel Explosive is a long book. It's about 700 pages, has a fairly intricate narrative structure, but let me just read as a bit of context, the jacket copy on the book uh, so people can sort of get oriented. The novel is in three voices, two first-person narrators, and one third-person narrator. So to begin, it's an otherwise ordinary week in April, the week after Easter 2009. Late in the week, a man wakes up in Guanajuato, Mexico, with his knowledge intact, but with no memory of who he is or how he came to live in Guanajuato. Early in the week, this is the second strand, a venture capitalist sits at his desk in an office tower in Los Angeles, attempting to complete his business memoirs, but troubled by the fact that a recent deal appears to be some sort of money laundering scheme. And then the third strand, in the middle of the week, just before dawn on April 15th, two gunmen arrive at an El Paso motel to retrieve a duffel bag stuffed full of currency and eliminate the man who brought it to El Paso. So those are the three strands. I'm gonna read from that third strand. The two protagonists are named Raymond and Jean. So we're gonna start from Raymond and Jean leaving um, a Cambio, a money exchange shop that's actually used for money laundering. And then the passage sort of telescopes out to give us a picture of downtown Juarez itself. What this is focused on is the different lifestyles of let's say the white men who live in the United States and run the macchiadoras or maquilas, the assembly shops that, as you likely know, line the major cities of the Mexican US border and produce assembled uh, largely electronics parts, uh, televisions and fully assembled products for export to the U.S. or import to the U.S. And the people who run the macaduras are mostly white men who live very well in the El Paso suburbs. And then we'll turn to see a typical worker in one of the maquilas, which are almost all young women. You have to be have very slim fingers and very nimble fingers to be able to assemble the tiny parts that go into printed circuit boards and so on. So anyway, to the passage. Raymond and Jean were getting mentally prepared to head out of Roberto's and back to the Magna, a Viper-powered variant of the Dodge Ram flatbed that sits parked at the head of an unmarked side street, directly across from the double door entrance to a reinforced concrete smoked glass office tower, a building that even now was slowly refilling with the hardworking minions of pennies shaved SA and pauper labor, ink and remote remorseless flows of bottom feeder capital unlimited. Most of whom, in turn, were getting mentally prepared to head out of Juarez and on to Guangxi, where a vast pool of illegals out of Vietnam and Cambodia have long ago hit bottom and are prepared to work for nothing and live on thin air. The accountants and number crunchers for the local maquiadoras were returning from a good long lunch in Juarez. <clears throat> Looking a little buzzed on margaritas and camarones, from Morisco's de Mazatlan, or maybe Bourbon and T-Bones from El Herraduro, or Qingtao's and Sweet and Sour from Restaurant Shangri-La with their soup coats over their shoulders and collars subtly, un- subtly unbuttoned and their half Windsor neckties ever so slightly askew. The next indicated action for the inventory masters was to kill an hour or two in their spreadsheet cubicles, digesting these massive meals that had cost as much in two hours as the girls on the Makila lines made in a month before heading on home to their subdivision colonials and friendly old El Paso and their well-groomed wives and 1.8 children and their smiles all around, honey, how was your day? Meanwhile, some 14-year-old kid in a tin roof shack in Colonia de Anapra with six brothers and sisters and an absence of any sort of semblance of plumbing was preparing for a shift from 4 p.m. to midnight, inserting Schottky rectifiers into PCBs for power supplies that would wind up eventually an hour or two later in a host of enormous plasma TV screens ideal for the recreation room of your five-bedroom duplicate of a replicant colonial. At this very minute, having swept the dirt floor and washed the dishes in a drainage ditch and hung out the laundry, she is putting on her uniform and eight straight-hour shoes, getting ready for the dusty walk from her home made of packing crates and garbage dump salvage to her bus stop in the colonia. An easy, though frequently deadly 20 minute walk where the bus will pick her up and drop her in the city center, perhaps an hour or so later, where maybe she'll find her rickety white ride to the Makila, or maybe she'll find three strangers and an ominous black suburban. If she somehow makes it home alive long past midnight, smelling her way along under the garbage light stars of the barrio cosmos, Past the angel-dusted street thugs and K-hole narco-ninos and buzz-bombed orphans sniffing turpentine cans,
3: waving Armalite
2: analog Rock River carbines, she'll have earned enough rapidly shrinking Mexican currency for almost a gallon of real whole milk, or maybe a down payment on a burlap sack of pinto beans, or nearly two cans of stewed tomatoes. Unless, of course, she's saving up her pay for tomorrow's 70 cent round trip to the McKeel. So I'll leave it at that, give you a sense of how the prose uh, sounds in the first part, and then I'll turn it over to Greg and uh, let him read
3: from one of his essays. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, Christine, for having us. going to read, the book is, it's divided uh, into three sections. There's essays on film, literature, and real life. And this one I'm reading from is on Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And it just details my kind of personal approach to art. My father fell asleep watching Barry Lyndon my mother fell asleep watching Barry Lyndon. I fell asleep with my mother as we watched Barry Lyndon, leaving a family friend to fend for herself through Barry's early army experiences. As Abbas Kiristami has said, I don't like to arouse the viewer emotionally or give him advice. I prefer films that put the audience to sleep. So I see no ill in letting oneself have Kubrick put one to bed. Out of the rambunctious, violent, or threateningly violent final five Kubrick films, Barry Lyndon is the most easeful, easeful, encouraging snoozing more than any other. My mother and father recovered after their early naps and did watch the rest, all the videoed celluloid down to the last wordless scene and the all-word epilogue. I don't believe I could actively place my contumely with the world at age 18 by citing a specific grievance or scenario of destruction wished for, but I believe what I auto biographically asked both my parents, via Kubrick was, if I were created by a marriage, as Brian was between two people whose connection seemed a tad unwholesome, and what if that son had died? Would it change your lives if I were to die? How would they change? Was I wayward enough to believe that if they cried for Brian, they would cry for me? I was. But did I know how recriminations can make a piss taken an old age sting? Or how as the body breaks down and hopes and desires become scores that will never be settled, certainly a certain oblivion gets clearer. I believe I was aware enough to grok Kubrick wasn't fucking around that real life, however candy colored or shit scented did at some base though dreamlike level resemble the world of Kubrick. That's why some of my elders with little aesthetic appreciation about them spoke of his work in hushed tones and why people still continually watch the films, repeat the lines and pay tribute in myriad other forms of imitation and affection. Kubrick speaks across the spectrum the film gave my parents pause at least enough to satisfy my longing that they demonstrate feeling at the sight of tragedy, and maybe by extension at the sight of love. Love of which object? Art, creator of art, or emissary of art? Kubrick had the mass appeal I needed to entreat the two most important people in my life whose divorce triggered an impulse to blame myself for its vagaries. If we could connect through Barry Lyndon, I thought we could share whatever else life had in store for us. So that's that.
2: Lovely, Greg. Uh, It gives a good sense of how you deal with art, not as a sort of object, but also as we live it, and it sort of lives us in some sense. um, let me first put in a plug um, for our publisher here, which is Zero Gram Press. Both Novel Explosives and See What I See um, are coming out shortly. Um, the second edition of Novel Explosives comes out in February, and Greg's book will be released in April. Um, but through an odd set of circumstances, I inherited the publisher's role at Zero Gram Press. So anybody who's interested in diving deeper into the books, go to zerogrampress.com. Okay, with that plug out of the way. So I actually selected Greg's book to publish, and so let me try to give you some sense of why I fell in love with the book first. You know, I read it first mainly for what Roland Barthes would call the pleasure of the text. Uh, the sentences are, are beautiful and uh, very precise. He has a language all of his own that he uses. And I could pretty much just find a good light source, sit down in a chair and just totally enjoy it. Now, this, of course, is Barr's sort of lazy version of enjoying a text. And what I began to see as I dug more deeply into the essays was that I was having to take a fresh look at works of literature or, in some case, film. Admittedly, I'm not an expert on film, but I had to take another look at things I thought I already knew. And Greg also gave me reason to ask myself, well, what is really my relationship with, with literature and with art? Why have I been doing this my whole life and what role does it play in, in my life? So this title of See What I See is is almost literally true. I began to look at texts I was very familiar with through new eyes, through Greg's eyes. And it's a very personal voice that he writes in, which I love. It's not the kind of this is an object we're going to study. These are essays to be just loved and enjoyed. So, with that, let me turn to a question, Greg. You, mm-hmm. um, in the literary essays, you, there are all sorts of authors, both poets and uh, great authors that you include kind of uh, maybe anchored a bit in the early essays by Henry James. But when I look at the second half of the 20th century, what I might've expected to find would be kind of the canonical writers like maybe Saul Bellow, John Updike, Philip Roth, maybe Cormac McCarthy. And what I found instead are novelists I love, William Gass, William Gaddis, Alexander Thoreau, of all people, who's has to be the the single great unread writer of the second half of the 20th century. So I suppose my question is, how did you go about choosing the writers that whose work you were going to investigate
3: for the essays? Well, I think at the time that I was becoming a writer, that's where my passion passions went because I fell in love with gas, uh, and went and interviewed him, uh, about nine, 10 years ago. And his own essays speak of loving the word, loving, you know, the architecture of the sentence. And these are things I was trying to teach myself without an MFA program, just kind of Going along and re- you know reading writers in order to make my own work. Eventually, books are made out of other books, as Mac- Mac- Cormac McCarthy says. Uh, so, at that time, also Gas gives you his own um, list of who you should be uh, reading. He has this. Temple of Texts, the the 50 Literary Pillars. And so many of these people are on that list, Henry James, Gertrude Stein, Gaddis, John Hawks um, and and many others. So a a lot of my energy was taken toward these people, um, many of whom he knew, Stanley Elkin would be another name. Um, And it was really, it was a class in a certain sense, that gas kind of taught me and uh, I just seized on these writers. There was there was something about them and I had read uh, enough Updike, uh, not enough Bellow, but a lot of Raymond Carver and Alice Monroe. and that kind of less is more writing had kind of, it ran its course with me and it just didn't grab me as much as the, uh, the full throated, uh, thrust of, uh, gas and Gaddis through writing at, at these, you know, saying no, not less is more, more is more. And so it it was just the passion to (laughs) follow these, these writers wherever they would go. Uh, and, and, you know, many dead ones as well, but that's, that's how it went
2: yeah so if you start from gas one of the great both sentence writers in the novel and also one of the great critics of the sentence with his spindle diagrams and and so on which i i still they sort of haunt me and if people don't know what a spindle diagram is you'll you'll have to pick up a a book of gases to see what I mean, but he was um, an incredible student of the sentence. So did the orientation via gas lead you to those writers that are the, the great sentence writers? I mean, then leading you back to Henry James or into Gertrude Stein, another great sentence writer, if in a totally different mode. Um, so is it via GAS that we get just essays that, by the way, I should point out, you don't have to have read a word of any of these people to have these be great introductions to the work. So if if no one's read GAS or William Gaddis, uh, you know, The Recognitions or Jr. or Frolic, I suspect almost no one in the audience has ever even heard of Alex Alexander Thoreau. They've probably heard of his brother, Paul Thoreau. But Thoreau is another one of the great writers of sentences. So I guess what I'm asking is, did Gass's infatuation or love of the sentence lead you back to the great sentence writers?
3: (laughs) Oh, yes uh, uh, with, with Henry James as the top of the pyramid, uh, who he called the master. Yeah. But I called, I and a lot of other people would call gas the master, uh, you know, of the late 20th century. Um, yes, just <laughs> a lot of people th- think Henry, Henry James is hard and or boring. And, in fact, I've just been reading one of his ghost stories, *A Private Life*, which is, which is a middle period work. It's very easy to get into. It runs very smoothly. The dialogue is snappy. There's there's a bounty of things uh, that uh, lie in the past that we should be reading that have that have lasted the test of time. Yeah. And that seems to get ignored uh, in the in these early 21st century days, or poo-pooed because it's "quote-unquote" maxim, maximalist or or you know boring. But call me I don't know what, but I, I think when someone looks at through a window and describes the ground in a majestic Shakespearean way, I don't find that boring at all because. Yeah. We're using the medium of words.
2: The beginning of Henry of Henry James's "The Portrait of the Lady" it has to be one of the great paragraphs in all literature. Okay, yeah. Anyway, I since we're on a time budget here, maybe we should flip things around uh, mm-hmm. and you
3: ask me something. <laughs> yes. Well, I just. Um, few weeks ago finished your extraordinary book an encyclopedic novel like no other I would call it because it's also a thriller uh with thrilling cinematic scenes um and it's set in many different places um Juarez, El Paso, Guanajuato. Yes and you describe especially Juarez uh, in pinpoint detail, street by street. Uh, if someone was gonna do an anthropological study of Juarez in you know, 2009, they, they would need to have your book with them. How did you do the research to describe these things so acutely and, and fantastically?
2: Yeah, well, since there's so much in the book, I'm not going to attempt to describe all the research. Some of the research I did was um, led to the um, CIA coming to have an interview with me, which is a story I'll have to say for another time. But I did a lot of um, dark web research with the drug cartels directly, oddly enough, ended up on an NSA watch list as a tour user and uh, given the fact that there's also a deep examination of what's called enhanced lethality weaponry. This is one of the truly bizarre things to me is to find the sort of euphemism that science uses to describe just trying to kill people, enhanced lethality munitions. I found that fascinating. Anyway. Eventually, I had a, it was a polite call with the CIA. They figured out fairly quickly I wasn't a terrorist. But in any case, if we focus just on Juarez, um, I read probably 50 or 75 books that were focused on the feminicides. Uh, these are described by Roberto Bellano in a far different style in, in 2666. And the part about the crimes, um, I memorized in a, the entire street map of Juarez um, because I knew I was going to have to visit there and I wasn't altogether sure if I got lost, I might not be dead. Mm. The problem at the time I was doing the research, so let's say this is right around the time the novel was set, 2009, there were 50,000 Mexican army soldiers there. So when in the book I described uh, one of the characters going across the Stand Street Bridge and meeting an armored infantry battalion that's incredibly well-armed, that actually happened to me. Mm. And I sort of plunged into Juarez, into the side streets, but fortunately had enough of a memory of the streets to be able to navigate my way around, eventually make my way to the Cuernavaca subdivision or Colonia Cuernavaca, where the all of the death houses are, where the bodies have been buried by the drug cartels, and then go out to Colonia de Anapro, which is described in the third-person part of this. Um, it was... I felt like I had to directly experience what the street life was actually like there. Um, At the other extreme, I also went to Greenfield, Kansas where one of the characters comes from just to get a sense of what his longing for home was about. So I spent three days in Greenfield, Kansas which I didn't even know was on the map. So anyway, it was a lot of research. It was books. It was um, it was books on money laundering, and then a lot of the research, of course, is just stuff that I lived as a venture capitalist. So I don't think. Hopefully, the book doesn't read like it's too researchy. You know, I hope all the research feels like it's it's just buried in the text. I try to just keep the narrative moving keep that thriller element going. So the reader wants to keep turning the pages and then slip things in along the way. So,
3: Yeah, it definitely has that. And and it also has you slowing down time incredibly to where uh, there was a discussion on social media about books that take place in a day, but I pointed out your book, there's 20 to 30 minutes that take place in about 250, 300 pages. And then there's about one minute that takes place in about 70 to 80 pages. So it's this super, super, super slow-mo and in these action sequences that, you know, people would be, would recognize from from films. Uh, You pack in, there's a gunman walking between these houses in Juarez and and he's he's bleeding he's trying to rescue his his partner and it's a tour de force it goes off into talking about uh native american names and and it branches out into this when i'm talking about it now it you know this this is really even though it's set takes place in mexico it's it's about american hegemony and and, and what for me? This is what's going on, you know. And I think in the, the the section you read about how people are, you know, working for peanuts just to survive, and then we have all of this junk making all of this th- these things. You pack the, the the world in. You pack the world into these long sections, and you propel them forward, and Uh, So how did you, you've told me that your method of composition, it it took you a very long time to make these huge paragraphs and sentences, or you you needed to do them one at a time before you went on, is that right? Yeah, I'm reminded
2: a bit of, uh, Mendelssohn had a comment when he first heard the second movement of his violin concerto in B, And he was sort of stunned and someone turned to him and said, Maestro, is there something wrong? And he said, I'm just amazed that it sounds like music. I wrote it bar by bar and it nearly killed me. (laughs) And uh, So yeah, Novel Explosives was written one paragraph at a time, meaning I, I never moved on to the next paragraph until I thought I had The paragraph I was working on in hand in some way. And sometimes this was weeks, if not months to get a a paragraph completed. You know, I worked on the book seven days a week, six to eight hours a day for seven years, which I don't, uh, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm bragging because, you know, Stendhal knocked off the red and the black in three weeks. You know, uh, writers can write as rapidly as they possibly can. But, um, you know, I was, I grew up as a poet and my natural inclination is to write very careful lines. And then as I began to write in paragraphs, all you really lose from poetry is the punctuation that the end of a line, that the line break uh, costs you. So this is in some sense, almost a 700 page poem, which is going to make it sound terrible to everybody. So I immediately withdraw that. It's a page turner. It's a thriller. Don't worry about it. Everything you need to read the book is in the book. There are no allusions to other literature. It's not something you need a skeleton key to read or anything, but yeah, the book, The book was carefully written and essentially the thing that is a little bit different about my method of composition is the entire outline for the book was on one side of a three by five card, meaning I had the timeline of the book set up so that I knew what happened each day of the week in the three different strands of the narrative but i didn't want to know too much about where exactly what was going to happen at the endpoints i wanted it to feel as surprising to me as it hopefully would feel to the reader when we got to a destination and something happened i knew vaguely what was going to happen there but if the writing sound sounded like it had been outlined and planned in advance it it felt dead to me, so I tried to keep it open so that it would be as surprising to me as it hopefully is to the reader. Um, I don't recommend my approach to composition to anybody. The book should have been done in a little over five years, but I found that a section about 50 pages from the end was, in cinematic terms, I had the camera pulled way too far back and... I was doing kind of overview stuff and I needed to get back in close in the free and direct through this character, Raymond, who's central to the third person narrative. And I had to rip that out. It took me 14 months to rewrite it. And the whole time I was writing it, I thought the whole book was going to fall apart. So in any case... uh, yeah, don't don't anyone write like that. Write like Stendhal. Get somebody to dictate it to, and just you know, spend a few weeks and knock off the whole book. Much easier.
3: <laughs> Great. Um, so
2: um, I think, given our sort of forty minutes timing here, we may have uh, exhausted our usefulness to Skylight. <laughs> um,
0: That is not true. This was fascinating. Both of you. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Jim Gower and Greg Gerke. And thank you both for your thoughtful questions. You're both very good interviewers. I was so impressed.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine.
0: And don't forget, everybody out there, you can always order both of these books, Novel Explosives by Jim Gower and See What I See, essays by Greg Gurky over at skylightbooks.com. And check back to the website often as new books are always coming in and there are dozens of virtual events every month that you can attend. Thank you so much, you guys, for supporting your neighborhood bookstore, Skylight Books, right here in Los Feliz, California. And please follow us on Twitter, at Skylight Books, so you'll always know what's going on. All right, you guys, one more time, on behalf of today's guest, Jim Gower. Thank you, Jim.
3: Thank you, Christine.
0: And Greg Gurkey, Thank you so much, Greg.
3: Thank you, Christine.
0: My name is Christine Blackburn, saying, read on. <laughs> i think i meant to say i'm gonna try I something one need- more time no you were perfect let me try something one more time so they can cut this in one more time on behalf of skylight bookstore read on okay they can cut that all right yeah. <laughs> just to be clear
2: yeah okay i hope i didn't cut things too short i uh, am cognizant of the fact that you know we could go on for hours but uh you know that I know what Maddie was hoping to end up with was no more than a half hour or so um
0: this is just great no it was just perfect it was nice and succinct and you you do you do want you do want to leave them wanting more i've been podcasting for over 10 years and i and i I, teach podcasting yeah and i always tell my my classes and i always tell them less is more (laughs) you know because then you want people to say oh shoot it's over you know Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
2: well in fact you know More is more in my novel, I'm afraid, but in any case, uh, not in radio. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's it. Exactly.
0: Hey, you guys, thank you so much. This is going to be up on January 11th. And Maddie's going to send you some social media uh, photos that you can use to to uh, to pitch it. Put it out there. Yeah,
2: it right up. Okay. Yeah, cool. January 11th. Any uh, idea how big the audience is for?
0: Well, you know, the bookstore we get about sixty thousand listeners a month. Oh my month. gosh! Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Wow. To our podcast, be we've, been, we've, been, we've been, yeah, we've been podcasting for uh, years. Yeah, yeah. We Podcast all the events, so yeah. we already have a really good audience built in. And now that things are virtual, it's even, it's even building more. So, yeah. I would say every episode probably, if I'm saying sixty thousand a month times. You're probably gonna get about eight to 10,000 on just this. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's cool. And I owe okay. you, I have to buy a copy of your book because I read it at a party. A friend of mine, I don't, do you know Kimberly Brooks or Albert Brooks by any chance? Mm,
0: not that I can think of. Okay, they had
2: well, Kimberly is a fan of your
0: podcast. Book. My book that's so nice
2: yeah and i i think she probably came to it through the podcast because she's very much into literature if you don't know uh albert a bit less so but uh kimberly is a big reader and i was at this gigantic party and i was out in the backyard with this like tiki torch reading your book and i Ended up reading the whole thing straight through. So I owe you a copy. (laughs) That's so sweet. It's called Pit to LAX. Yeah. the story of this journey that she tries to make to Hollywood, and she ends up going through the Peace Corps and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Nice. Nice.
0: So kind of you to read that. Here it is, Pit to LAX. Because I was a flight Uh attendant, and so... These are like uh, city codes.
2: City codes, exactly. And I was trying to think of the city codes you'd need to describe my journey, which (laughs) ends up going through Lisbon and France and belgium and then singapore and malaysia and oh yeah. jim that yeah, is you know, stunning yeah I didn't even sit the airports on the cover so anyway
0: that's stunning i'm really flattered thank you jim that's I really i will kind buy of you. a copy i owe you're you You're so money. sweet you're funny okay. thank you the show is story worthy so yeah you guys should definitely listen to my podcast it's uh it's been going for over 10 years i've had on fantastic guests i've had on larry king three times
2: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh! I God. love
0: Larry. And he he's getting better, by the way. He's out of ICU. Oh,
2: good. He good.
0: was in Cedars and ICU. He's out. Yeah, he's hes going to okay. make it. I know. Uh,
2: my wife is a huge fan of Larry's. And Me has too. been wondering whether he was, we were going to get news any day that, yeah.
0: Oh, but, I know. It's scary. Anyways. Hey, guys, Les, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks so much. I really for appreciate it. Us. And You're nice to wonder. meet you.
2: You're a star. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bye, Thanks. guys.
0: Thanks,
1: Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Bye. Bye.